0: Hello everyone and welcome to our regular press briefing on COVID-19. Today is June 22nd and uh, with us uh, we have Dr. Tedros, WHO Director General, Dr. Maria van Kerkhove and Dr. Mike Ryan. Before I give the floor to Dr. Tedros for his opening remarks, I would just like to remind journalists who are watching us on Zoom that uh, uh, you can listen uh, this briefing in six UN languages, uh, that's English, French, Spanish, Arabic, Russian, Chinese, but also in Portuguese and Hindi if you uh, look uh, uh, on your tab under settings. And that's uh, uh, possible thanks to our interpreters who are here with us today. You can also ask questions when we get to that in all those languages except Hindi. I'll give the floor now to Dr. Tedros for his opening remarks.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tariq. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It seems that almost every day we reach a new and grim record. Yesterday, more than 183,000 new cases of COVID were reported to WHO. Easily the most in a single day so far. Uh, More than 8.8 million cases have now been reported to WHO, and more than 465,000 people have lost their lives. Some countries are continuing to see a rapid increase in cases and deaths. Some countries that have successfully suppressed transmission are now seeing an upswing in cases as they reopen their societies and economies. All countries are facing a delicate balance between protecting their people while minimizing the social and economic damage. It's not a choice between lives and livelihoods. Countries can do both. We urge countries to be careful and creative in finding solutions that people stay safe while getting getting on with their lives. We continue to urge all countries to double down on the fundamental public health measures that we know work. Finding and testing suspected cases works. Isolating and caring for the sick works. Tracing and quarantining contacts works. And protecting health workers works. At the same time, these measures can only be effective if each and every individual takes the measures that we also know work to protect themselves and others. Maintain physical distance, continue cleaning your hands and wear a mask where appropriate. Just as we do the things that we know work to prevent the spread of the disease, we're also learning more about how to treat the sick. Although the data is still preliminary, the recent finding that the steroid dexamethasone has life-saving potential for critically ill COVID-19 patients gave us a much needed reason to celebrate the next challenge is to increase production and rapidly and equitably distribute dexamethasone worldwide, focusing on where it's needed most. Demand has already surged following the UK trial results, showing dexamethasone's clear benefit. Fortunately, this is an inexpensive medicine, and there are many dexamethasone manufacturers worldwide who we're confident can accelerate production. Guided by solidarity, countries must work together to ensure supplies are prioritized for countries where there are large numbers of critically ill patients and that supplies remain available to treat other diseases for which it is needed. Transparency and constant monitoring will be key to ensuring needs dictate supplies rather than means. It's also important to check that suppliers can guarantee quality as there is a high risk of substandard or fortified products entering the market. WHO emphasized that dexamethasone should only be used for patients with severe or critical disease under close clinical supervision. There is no evidence this drug works for patients with mild disease or as a preventative measure and it could cause harm. WHO is also continuing to support countries with essential supplies of personal protective equipment and laboratory diagnostics. One way we're doing that is through the COVID-19 supply portal, an online platform through which countries that need supplies can enter requests. So far, 48 countries have made requests for supplies with a value of $92 million. WHO is currently in the process of shipping more than 140 million items of personal protective equipment to 135 countries, 14,000 oxygen concentrators, and millions of tests. Meanwhile, WHO is also working with countries to maintain essential health services. WHO recently surveyed countries to assess the impact of the pandemic on essential health services of the 82 countries that have responded so far more than half have limited or suspended at least one service delivery platform such as outpatient or inpatient services or community-based care almost three quarters of countries reported that Dental and rehabilitation services have been partially or completely disrupted. Around two thirds of countries reported disruptions to routine immunisation, diagnosis and treatment for non-communicable diseases and family planning and contraception. More than half of countries reported disruptions for mental health disorders, antenatal care, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and services for sick children. Countries are using a variety of strategies to deal with these disruptions, including triage, telemedicine, and redirecting patients to alternative health facilities. Still, the consequences of these disruptions will be felt for many years to come. The world is learning the hard way that health is not a luxury item. It's the cornerstone of security, stability, and prosperity. That's why it's essential that countries not only respond urgently to the pandemic, but also that they invest in strong health systems domestically and in global health security. Last year, world leaders came together at the United Nations General Assembly in New York to adopt a landmark political declaration on universal health coverage. No more than ever... All countries must make universal health coverage a priority. It's not a question of whether countries can afford to do this. It's a question of whether they can afford not to. I thank you.
0: Many thanks, uh, Dr. Tetris, for these opening remarks. Uh, We will try to uh, have one question per journalist. Uh, So we will start with Sputnik and we have Valentina online.
2: Hi, uh, thank you very much for taking my question. Do you hear me?
0: Uh, We hear you very well.
2: Thank you very much. Um, I would like to ask WHO's position on an announcement made by the South Korean authorities that the country is experiencing now a second wave of the novel coronavirus infections in Seoul. Are Are there indeed indications of a second wave rather than a second peak within the first wave there? And should other countries, which were like South Korea, among those hit by... The pandemic first anticipate a second wave as well anytime soon thank you very much so thank you for the question i can start um so yes um i mean there are many countries right now that um which have had success in suppressing transmission and bringing uh human human transmission down to a low level that are starting to see increase in cases Um, and there's a number of reasons for that Um, They've either seen outbreaks um, in in certain settings or closed settings like we've seen related to either religious events or related to outbreaks in dormitories of expatriate workers or in different types of facilities. Um, Whether that's a second wave, you've you've heard us speak about this before, um, where any opportunity that the virus has to take hold, um, it will Um, And it's really important that countries are in a position to be able to rapidly detect these cases and put everything they can to isolate um, cases so that the outbreaks don't become larger and that these small numbers of cases don't become clusters and that these clusters of cases don't become community transmission again. Um, uh, Korea has has a lot of experience in in dealing with with COVID, um, like all countries do now. And in particular, uh, when they see outbreaks that are occurring in specific settings and they know what to do. Um, and so we urge all countries to be at the ready uh, to be able to detect any cases that pop up, regardless of where they may be. We know that our, there are particular vulnerable settings, um, prim- primarily where there may be patients, so in healthcare facilities, whether you have closed settings um, where people are in close contact with one another, and be really ready to find those cases. Isolate cases, carry out comprehensive contact tracing, um, and care for for those individuals who need care in medical facilities.
3: Yeah, and if I can uh, supplement, certainly um, I'm not aware of an announcement by the Korean authorities uh, on the subject that you mentioned. But I, I can note that uh, there's only been a three percent overall increase in cases in Korea in the last week, and in fact. Uh, I think only three deaths reported in the last week. Um, but what uh, is clear is there have been uh, new clusters in multiple settings uh, in Seoul. Um, and uh, the overall number of cases actually in, in South Korea is very, very stable, are actually dropping. These, two, these new clusters, obviously, uh, they're linked to various uh, settings, uh, to clubs, to shelters... Uh, to amusement parks and to particular settings in which uh, transmission has been diagnosed. Uh, my understanding is that the vast majority of cases being detected are linked to existing and recognised clusters, and as such, the, the South Korean authorities still have great visibility over where the virus is and the dynamics and the chains within which the virus is transmitting. But that, that's, that's a constant struggle to stay ahead uh, to stay ahead of the virus. So uh, continued vigilance uh, is, is extremely important. I know the Korea Center for Disease Control and the governments in, in the Republic of Korea are uh, usually uh, skilled now in detecting clusters and investigating clusters and in doing the kind of targeted measures uh, that allow them to uh, bring these clusters under control. But it is, uh, it is a challenge for all countries and I think uh, South Korea with other countries demonstrate that even when you get down to very low incidence, you still have to have a very strong public health surveillance system, and you still have to have a very capable um, um, uh, public health infrastructure. You still have to have a population that uh, that is willing to take the necessary actions. And I think what we see in the Republic of Korea is a highly engaged community that uh, believes in science, believes in its authorities, and is willing to implement measures uh, at a sub-national level uh, that are aimed at reducing transmission. So from that perspective, uh, I would say that Korea is still on track uh, with its disease control efforts, Uh, but like all countries, there there are always risks of any disease uh, getting out of control.
0: Many thanks. Uh, Next question comes from uh, Juan Miguel Hernandez. Uh, From uh, El País, Uh, Juan. uh, Can you please unmute yourself? Hello.
1: Uh, Hello. Hello. Me oye? Yes. Quisiera preguntar sobre eh, denuncias de de los últimos días de personas eh, en España que han dicho que tienen síntomas de
4: coronavirus persistentes, eh, tos, fiebre dificultad para respirar durante los últimos 3 meses. ¿Cuál es la la investigación
1: o
0: la percepción de la OMS in ese caso?
2: Thank you for this uh, question. Um, yes, we are we're working um, through our clinical network and and with clinicians who are dealing with patients. Um, infected with COVID-19 to understand not only how the patients are dealing um, with disease and what kind of disease they experience while in hospital, but after they recover and when they are, are, are released from hospital and they go home. Um, we do. We have uh, guidelines around rehabilitation and follow up of, of those who do recover. And we should say that we are seeing millions of people who are recovering from COVID-19, which is a very good sign. Um, but indeed, there are people who have persistence. Um, some, some people who have uh, persi- persistent symptoms, like a, a long-term cough, uh, like a dry cough for some time, they may feel quite fatigued for some time, they may feel some shortness of breath while they're, while they're climbing stairs. But we are working to better understand um, what recovery looks like, Um, And more specifically, and more importantly, what type of uh, long-term care, if needed, uh, what does that look like for people who have recovered? Um, We do know people who have more severe infection, who've perhaps been intubated, may have some damage to their lungs, and that may take a longer time to recover. But again, we're still learning about this disease. We're still learning about how people recover and what care they need after they are discharged from hospital.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Next question coming from uh, AFP, uh, Nina Larson. Hello, Nina.
2: Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Uh, very well. Okay, thank you for taking
3: my question. Um, I wanted to ask following uh, the release of data
4: um, from a National Health Institute study of wastewater in Italy last week, suggesting that the novel coronavirus was present in two large Italian cities in December. I was wondering if WHO is still confident that the virus source is in China, um, or if you're, and also if you're aware of other wastewater studies showing similar results that might raise questions about the understanding of when and where this pandemic actually began. Thank you.
3: And this is uh, the the Italian findings I think are very interesting. I don't believe that uh, live virus was cultured, but I do believe it was related to RNA fragments and it is always important uh, that if RNA fragments are recovered from water that was collected in December then clearly there is a, a chance that uh, this virus was circulating in Northern Italy uh, obviously before anyone uh, had uh, realized that it, that it had been. Um, having said that, the, the, import, the documented importation of cases which temporarily, from a timing point of view, led to the the explosion of cases. What's not clear is to what extent uh, the presence of the virus or the potential presence of the virus uh, in the environment before uh, the the known importation. In what way did that contribute to the amplification of disease at community level? So it's very important that these uh, these, uh, results are further pursued. Uh, I know there have been other wastewater-based wastewater studies. Maria may give you more details uh, on, those, uh, on, those, uh, on those studies. But it is important. These are important findings, uh, and uh, it's very important that they're pursued. I don't think at this point it changes uh, the hypothesis on disease origin per se, but uh, we must remain open to any scientific findings that uh, offer us clues as to the potential emergence and amplification of this disease in human populations. Maria?
2: Yeah, only to very briefly add that the the use of looking for the virus in wastewater, and and as Mike has pointed out, this is looking... for fragments of the virus, so mm-hmm. RNA fragments of the virus, not live viruses, not been isolated from, from wastewater. Um, what we're looking at is in the context of surveillance for COVID-19, we know primarily we need to focus on looking for people who are infected with the virus, actively infected with the virus, because this is important for making sure that they, they have the right clinical care and that we follow their context and so we could break chains of transmission. But in addition to that, we're looking at other ways, potential ways in which we can look to see if the virus is circulating. Um, We've mentioned looking at the influenza-like illness and the severe acute respiratory illness, respiratory disease surveillance that exists in most countries to see if it's circulating in the community. Wastewater is another potential way in which we can look to see if the virus may be there. But again, that won't help you find individuals who are infected with this virus, which is so critical uh, at looking at suppressing transmission so finding those individuals so that is something that um, is in our uh, overall surveillance portfolio for COVID Um, and we we hope that this will be helpful in determining um, where the virus may be present where it may be more difficult to find individual patients but it is critical that our surveillance efforts the most of our surveillance efforts are focusing on finding individuals who are actively infected with COVID.
0: Thanks. Next question, uh, N1 TV from Bosnia-Herzegovina. We have Esmir online. Esmir?
4: Hi, can you hear me?
0: Uh, yes. Uh,
4: my question is regarding region of the Western Balkans. Um, are you afraid that we are going to have increased the number of uh, cases? Because yesterday in Croatia we have a tennis tournament in Zadar with uh, a few players and officials infected with COVID-19. Also in Serbia, yesterday we had parliamentary elections with almost 3.5 million people voting. Uh, Bosnia has a number of uh, cases reporting over the last uh, 24 hours increased. And also in Montenegro, we have um, religious processions, and in all those cases, we haven't seen uh, many masks and uh, protections. Um, Are we on the road to have more and more cases reported. Thank you.
3: Um, From the perspective of uh, the Western Balkans and and also countries further to the south, certainly they they have been in the main less affected than other countries in the European region uh, early on in the epidemic. and uh, Some have been very successful in ensuring that the disease numbers have been kept low. Um, but as we've said, in, in other countries in Asia that have managed to get their numbers very low, and in countries that still have low numbers, there is always the chance uh, of disease amplification, particularly in association. With mass gatherings, we saw, we've seen that in, in some of the outbreaks in, in Europe and in other places where amplification events can occur, super events can occur, and disease can can explode uh, uh, very quickly. We've seen uh, super-spreading events in, in any number of different settings, mainly in closed indoor settings, both occupational, um, residential, um, and, and other settings. So there are always risks, and it's really important that the gains that have been made by countries... Uh, in the West, in the in the Balkans that that have avoided the worst of this disease, that they continue to sustain those efforts, um, and it is very important that the same measures uh, are applied, that people are aware uh, and are applying. Uh, Uh, hygiene measures, that physical distance is being respected, even in the situations of low incidence, that people are wearing masks in the the appropriate settings, um, and that uh, organisers of mass gatherings are aware and managing the risks associated with those gatherings. Uh, All countries have specific recommendations related to the gatherings, the size of gatherings that can occur, and how those should occur and how risks should be managed. I can't specify uh, for any individual country what those are but uh, organisers of gatherings, whatever those gatherings may be, should respect the advice of national authorities and try as best as possible to implement those. Uh, The the measures that are being advised are very simple, they're very practical, and it's incumbent on all to to apply them. And we do hope that the the countries uh, in the area that have uh, had a great deal of success in keeping the numbers low will continue to do so if those measures are applied in a systematic way.
0: Next question uh, is for Sarah Newey from Telegraph. Sarah.
2: Hi there, can you hear me? Uh, Yes. Uh, Brilliant. Um, There's been reports that today that Africa is nearing 300,000 cases. I just wondered, I mean, how much do you think that's an underestimate? And do you think that Africa could be the next hotspot? We've seen it. It's obviously focused in Latin America and North America at the moment, but uh, are you concerned that that might shift um, in the coming months?
3: Um, here? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I think the the situation in 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 Africa is uh, is mixed, and I think uh, Africa is a very large continent. Um, uh, both uh, in the in sub-Saharan sense and, and North Africa, which are in two different WHO, WHO regions. But, uh, you know, we've seen increases of disease in some countries in excess of 50% in the last week, and we've seen other countries with very, very stable numbers. But in general, the numbers are on the rise. In Africa, we've seen large increases in places like, uh, like South, South Africa. Uh, we've seen increases in places like, uh, like Benin. in in Eritrea, in Ethiopia, in Burundi. Um, What we haven't seen uh, yet are large increases in the number of deaths. So Africa, at this point, uh, is still avoiding the the, the large proportion of deaths uh, that have been associated with uh, this disease in other continents. Now, there are are important caveats here. Testing is not uh, not as frequent in Africa, so there clearly could be underreporting of cases. Hospitals uh, do not appear in most countries to be overwhelmed, but in certain countries, uh, like in Nigeria and in heavily populated areas like Lagos, uh, hospitals have come under significant pressure. So I would say the situation in Africa in general is very mixed. It very much depends on the context in which people are living. Larger cities seem to be more affected. Uh, We've seen outbreaks in refugee camps. We've seen... um, as I said, uh, increases in cases uh, in in, in a number of of different settings. Um, Will Africa be the next uh, epicentre for this uh, uh, pandemic? I certainly hope not, because the health systems in Africa in general are weaker than in other parts of the world. Uh, Populations... uh, While they have the benefit of of an age profile that's much younger, there are many people with underlying conditions, there are many, many vulnerable people. And we need to try and keep these numbers as low as possible, while at the same time uh, making sure that the lives and livelihoods are protected. And uh, this is is a constant challenge. So there is no room for complacency uh, on the African continent. This is a time to really focus in on improving surveillance. Really focus in on improving the capacity of healthcare to treat cases uh, and to focus in on some of those countries that are experiencing uh, uh, quite large increases of cases. And uh, our African Regional Office, our Eastern Mediterranean Office, continue to work uh, with those countries. And we have WHO offices in all of the countries in, in Africa and will continue to work closely with, uh, with governments there, both to suppress transmission and to reduce case fatality, uh, where where that is a problem.
0: Um, We will have now uh, China Daily. We have Chen with us.
4: Hello. Hi. I just have a a question. Uh, Forgive me if you have already published such a guide. Uh, You know, countries who have actually reopened uh, uh, lately, I mean, like Europe or, you know, some other places, people started traveling. So has WHO published the guidelines on travel industry? I mean, how, like, whether car rentals or hotels uh, could it be safe? I mean, wouldn't it become a super spread? Thank you. I
2: can, I can start, and maybe Mike would like to supplement. Um, yes, I mean, we uh, are working very closely with um, the travel and tourism industry Um, to support uh, them in the process of opening up and the process of having travel that's safe and making sure that we um, reduce the risk of transmission um, within facilities related to travel. So we do have a series of documents out um, on guidance around hotels. Um, We're working with the airline industry to look at the safe resumption of flights, um, and we will have more guidance coming out in the coming days um, on this to be able to support the safe reopening. Um, but it is important that while people travel through the whole process of travel, you know, leaving their home to where they reach their destination, um, that that is done in, in a safe manner. And not only is it important for the industry and, and the airlines and the hotels to be able to offer safe um, um, experiences, we need individuals to also play their role. Um, And for example, the DG highlighted this in his speech today, it's important that everyone at an individual level know what they can do to protect themselves, to protect their families, to protect their communities. from infection and from onward transmission. And this includes the basics. It includes all of the basics of physical distancing of at least one meter, making sure you practice respiratory etiquette, that you wear a mask when you need to wear a mask in situations where you can't do physical distancing and where there's transmission, making sure that you practice hand hygiene. Um, All of these things need to to be um, practiced globally um, as we move forward, as as this pandemic evolves.
3: Yeah, and as Marie said, we, we will be issuing further guidance in, in the coming days as, as countries open up to travel between uh, each other. But uh, again, I think it's important to emphasize that uh, it's the responsibility and duty of, of each sovereign state Uh, to put in place the protections uh, for its own population and that applies not only within countries but with regard to travel into and out of any given country. Um, And we do recognise that countries exist at states of different risks. Countries who have very, very low incidence of disease or no incidence of disease may may, uh, design measures that, that, that may appear stricter Uh, than uh, than in uh, in other countries because the the risks to them uh, of importation of disease and the consequence of that importation are are much, much higher. So WHO has has been clear on this uh, over a very long time that measures and and facilitation of travel and measures that uh, result in any restriction of travel should be based on public health protection, on public health principles. They should be measured. They should be reviewed regularly. But in the end, countries are in a position to measure and manage the risk to their citizens, to their society and to their economy. Um, And as such, uh, as we open up and as we travel between countries, it's really important for for member states uh, and others to put in place those measures that they feel are commensurate and are balanced, uh, that protect their populations, while at the same time, as we've seen, balancing risk of disease against lives and livelihoods within countries we see this dilemma how do we manage lockdowns and how do we manage stay at home orders while at the same time uh, protecting lives and livelihoods that same factor comes into play when you talk about international travel and international trade you're trying to balance public health risks against lives livelihoods economy Um, and it's not an easy challenge for any government it is a dilemma it involves trade-offs there are no zero risks uh, and as such, we will support Member States in making their risk assessments, in coming to measured judgments regarding the risks to themselves uh, and the measures they need to put in place. But ultimately, we would, we would like to see public health-based uh, measures that are reviewed regularly uh, and that we all move towards uh, a new normal that inv- involves us being able to move around uh, and being able to, to travel and trade in a, in a normal fashion, while at the same time managing uh, those public health risks. And we will be issuing uh, more specific guidance in, in the coming days around that process.
0: Now we will uh, have uh, Lara Pinheiro from Globo, Brazil. Lara.
4: Um, hello, can you hear me? Uh,
0: yes, uh, please go ahead.
4: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my question. I would like to know um, what the role is of ivermectin, if there's any, in fighting COVID 19. What do we know so far? Yeah,
3: I think we have this question some time ago. Um, We'll have to get back to you on on the details. Uh, I mean, there are many, many molecules and uh, older drugs that have been tested as either prophylaxis or as treatment. We'll we'll have to get back to you on whether or not there are any ongoing trials uh, using ivermectin. We'll we'll probably get back to you before the end of the press conference. We just need to check that we give you the right information.
0: Okay, Lagerf, stay in touch. We will uh, will provide that uh, we will now hear from uh, Raid Wilson from The Hill, Raid.
4: Sorry about that. Can you comment on the rising number of cases in the United States, uh, particularly in southern states? What do you make of the rise in both positivity rates and cases among younger people?
3: Um. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, been upticks in cases in, in a number of states in, in the U.S. Um, um, I'm not uh, uh, 100% sure about the age profile, but I've seen the reports that uh, that some of this is amongst younger younger people. That may reflect uh, the fact that younger people are more mobile and are are are, are, are getting out and taking advantage of the the, the reduction in, in the restrictions uh, of movement. Um, And uh, this is something that uh, WHO has spoken about many times. Many countries have experienced uh, clusters of disease or upticks in the aftermath of of, uh, uh, reducing uh, stay-at-home orders or allowing population mobility uh, uh, to happen. Uh, What we've said, and I believe the scientists in the US are saying this uh, over and over, is that uh, maintaining vigilance around physical uh, distance, personal hygiene, Uh, um, uh, the wearing of masks according to to the national uh, guidelines and where appropriate, the the increase of uh, surveillance so that clusters are investigated, testing, tracking, isolating cases, quarantining contacts. This is what uh, needs to continue. Um, And uh, I believe that is is, is happening uh, in, in many countries and in many states in the United States. So I think it's for... For at the federal level, uh, I'm sure our colleagues there are looking at this and what the implications of this are state by state, each state is unique um, and I'm sure each state is looking at the implications of this for their population um, what is clear is that uh, the the increase uh, is not entirely explained through just increased testing there's some evidence of increasing hospitalizations uh, but uh, this was always a possibility when when restrictions are lifted and and again has happened in in many countries the issue is not the rising numbers per se the issue is uh, what is to be done to bring those numbers back uh, and what combination of measures can be used in order to do that in terms of uh, targeted public health measures increasing surveillance increasing cluster investigation and ensuring that we identify cases and contacts as quickly as possible isolate the cases quarantine the contacts uh, and where necessary Uh, And hopefully at a a much more localised level, there may be a need uh, to put some restrictions in place uh, in order to suppress infection. And again, we've seen countries uh, uh, do that at a a micro level, not at a state level or even at a national level, but to where needed. uh, If there are clusters of cases with uh, potential for community transmission, that there may need to be some uh, adapted measures to... uh, to suppress uh, infection while the clusters are investigated. Yeah. Uh,
0: we will now go to Carlo Kelly if I pronounce well, from Politico. Carlo, can you hear us?
4: Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, thank you for taking my question. Uh, this is regarding the outbreak in Germany at the um, meat packaging plant. Uh, I wanted to know if you were monitoring that outbreak um, and if you could just provide any guidance as um, to which particular workplace locations we're seeing uh, might be more vulnerable for starting these outbreaks and potentially for giving more momentum to a future second wave. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for the question. Yes, indeed, we are following this outbreak um, in this uh, meatpacking uh, plant in Germany, as well as a number of outbreaks and clusters that are happening in food processing plants across a, a number of countries. Um, what, we, what I can say is that we need to know more um, to really better understand why these clusters are happening, why these outbreaks are happening, um, so that we, we can learn how to stop them. Um, there, there may be some, some, some uh, I don't want to speculate too much um, because we need to learn more about these and the outbreak investigations need to be carried out. Um, to better understand what's happening at the 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 factories the plants themselves as well as the individuals who are infected um, the living conditions in which they live and any other potential sources of infection uh, um, for these outbreaks so we are working uh, with a number of countries a number of groups to better understand and consolidate our understanding around these outbreaks Um, what we do know is that um, like we've said before, uh, the outbreak, th- this virus likes the possibility of, of close quarters, and whether that's at the home or whether that's at work, we need to ensure that we make sure we um, we prevent these outbreaks from happening. So uh, w- we need to find out a little bit more uh, to be able to give a more well-rounded answer.
0: Uh, now we will go to uh, uh, Bayram Altug from Anadolu Agency, Bayram. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, thank you very much for uh, taking my question. Good afternoon, uh, all of uh, the people there. Um, my question is also related to Italy. Uh, Professor Alberto Zanguillo, head of intensive care at Italy's uh, San Rafael Hospital in Lombardy, has said that the new coronavirus is losing its potence, potency and has become much less lethal. Uh, he said that COVID-19 mutates over time and hopefully one day will become a common cold virus. It can also be noted that while the number of cases broke a record in recent days, there is no serious increase in the number of deaths in the light of this data. Do you think the virus really uh, loses its effect? Thank you.
2: I will I will begin so thank you for this thank you for this question. Um, we, we've mentioned before that there's a, a large number of virologists and scientists that are looking at this virus um, as it emerges in, in all countries. Um, and I just checked today and I saw there's more than 49,000 uh, full genome sequences that are that are available um, that we're looking at to see to determine if there are changes in the virus. And as this is an RNA virus, there are changes, um, expected changes in them, um, and we're trying to determine if those changes have any impact on the way that this virus behaves. Uh, We haven't seen that yet, but we have a group of people globally who are looking at this um, to make sure that we are paying attention, to make sure that all of the viruses that are shared, and we're grateful for countries for sharing these sequences, um, determine if any of those changes will mean a different change in behavior. Um, in terms of the potency of the virus, it's, it's an important observation um, that you mentioned, and we will look into it. Um, but we should highlight that this virus is, is very uh, deadly. Um, when it does have a chance to infect people, it can kill people. Um, and so we want to make sure that everyone treats this virus seriously and make sure that we do everything that we can from preventing infection um, and then from those that are infected to prevent those individuals from developing more severe disease.
3: Yeah, if I just might add, uh, thus far at least there, there, there is no uh, evidence that uh, of all of the sequences that have been generated in all of the different infections in the world that we 're seeing any strain of the virus emerge that has uh, either greater or lesser lethality or clinical impact uh, in fact the, the, the virus uh, most mutations in viruses uh, provide no biologic advantage uh, to the virus and in fact most are detrimental to the virus but in some cases just now and again uh, this is the process of evolution for for all uh, uh, dna and rna RNA based organisms Uh, just now and again uh, a single mutation or a few mutations can can result in the virus Changing, And what we're always watching out for is any change that changes the clinical impact of the disease, makes it less or more virulent, but also uh, changes that might reduce the effectiveness of therapeutics or vaccines, um, or that might affect transmissibility or likelihood of transmission or the route of transmission. Um, Or, uh, in this case too, changes to the virus can reduce the, uh, the effectiveness of our testing because our tests are based on recognising uh, very often the genetic sequence of the virus. So we're we constantly monitoring the genetic sequences because it can affect diagnosis, it can affect treatment, it can affect vaccines, and it can f- affect the, 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 the clinical impact of the disease and the patterns of spread. So because of that, we, reta- we maintain very strong vigilance with the network of virologists and others around the world. In fact, I think within the laboratory working group, there is Maria and the team have put together a very specific group of virologists and and, and genetic experts who are constantly reviewing the sequences and looking out for exactly those signals that you you mentioned. But with regard to the uh, real-world observations, we are not observing a a significant difference in behaviour of this virus in any of the areas that I I, uh, mentioned, either in terms of its transmission, its clinical lethality, uh, in our diagnostic capacities, nor in the impact of uh, therapeutics.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Uh, we will now uh, take question from uh, Sophie, from uh, South African broadcaster. Sophie. Mm-hmm. Sophie,
4: can you un- unmute yourself, please? is around uh, yesterday, the announcement that uh, the WHO recorded a highest number uh, yesterday around the world. I just want to find out if you were to attribute this to something, what would be the reason for these high numbers that were reported yesterday and also perhaps which countries uh, contributed to this high number?
3: Um, I can begin. The DG or, or, or Maria may wish to add. Um, certainly the numbers uh, are increasing uh, because the the epidemic is developing in 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 a number of populous countries at the same time and and across the whole world so from that perspective a large number of countries are contributing to that overall increase uh some of that increase uh may be attributed to increased testing countries are testing more uh and certainly countries like india uh are testing more uh but we We do not believe that this is a testing phenomenon. Clearly, when you look at uh, hospital admissions are also rising in a number of countries, deaths are also rising, and they're uh, they're not due to increased testing per se. So there definitely is a shift in the sense that the virus is now very well established at a global level. It has reached uh, some of the most populous countries in the world, some of the most uh, populated areas of the world. Uh, And because the epidemic is now peaking or moving towards a peak in a a number of large countries at the same time, you're seeing that impact on the number of cases. Now, in in Europe, in Western Europe, you're seeing the curves decrease. In Southeast Asia, you're seeing the curves decrease. Uh, And then the overall numbers increase, which which clearly means Central, uh, the Americas, uh, uh, are contributing. South Asia is contributing uh, very much, but also there are countries in the Middle East and there are countries in Africa that are also uh, contributing to that overall increase. So the situation is definitely um, accelerating in, in a number of countries with larger populations, and, and that is most certainly contributing to this overall increased number. Maria.
2: Uh, only to add, if you you want some specifics on the the case reports every day, we do have a dashboard that's online where you can look and see the actual numbers of cases and deaths that are reported, and you can break that down by by countries, so you can get uh, by regions and by countries. Um, So that can give you some granularity if you want to see where are those actual numbers coming from, Um, and it's on our our main uh, WHO website.
0: we have time for a couple of more questions. Uh, Ana Pinto from de Sao Paulo. Ana.
4: Yes, thank you, Tariq. Um, Dr. Ryan, last week you said there were signs that COVID was stabilizing in Brazil. I would like to ask if you could elaborate a little more on which are those signs and what the trend is now, if the signs are still pointing to stabilization in Brazil. Thank you very much.
3: Well, I think, as you know, Brazil has surpassed uh, 1 million cases and, and just reported a record, I think, 54,000 cases in, the, in our last 24-hour uh, reporting period. Um, uh, some of that may reflect changes uh, in reporting, uh, as there was a lag and the change in, in the systems reporting, I believe, from the state level. So some of that is potentially architectural. But if you look at the, the number of cases over the, last, over the month of June, They've remained relatively stable. What you see is a kind of a stable weekly pattern, a decrease at the weekends. It's not that the d- disease decreases, reporting changes. But there certainly has been a spike in cases in, 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 in the last 24 hours. And again, we're looking into how much of that is artifactual or related to reporting and how many days that reflects going, going back over the last week. Um, uh, because on Wednesday, Thursday of last week, the number of confirmations from Brazil was actually below average. Uh, and now we have a, a, a very much an increased number, which may, res- may reflect it's above average. Or, uh, so we're looking into that with our colleagues at the Pan American Health Organization, our regional office for the Americas. The states with the highest number of cases are you know, still Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Sierra, uh, Para, and uh, Marantau, um, uh, and the number of cases at São Paulo are approaching uh, 212 million, uh, or 200, sorry, 212,000. I'm sorry, uh, but there still is relatively uh, uh, low tests per population, and the positivity rates for testing uh, are still quite high. If you look overall, uh, in epidemiologic week 17, I believe the positivity rate was 31% per Brazil. So that generally means. That there are probably more cases out there than have been reported. What we tend to see is that positivity rate dropping, usually down to 5% or less in countries that are detecting all of their cases and that are, in effect, over-testing. So from that perspective, uh, we would would say that this uh, trend or these large number of cases are, are not reflective of exhaustive testing. But, but as I said, uh, probably underestimate the actual numbers of of cases. So while the overall pattern of disease in Brazil, as I said last week, is overall flat, the the number in the last 24 hours needs to be examined carefully. But also we need to look at the fact that, uh, as I said, up to nearly one-third of all tests are positive, which does uh, indicate that there is under-detection or under-reporting of cases overall.
2: If I could just add to that, it's not specifically about Brazil, but when we look at any case numbers in any country, it's really important that we we break this down to the lowest administrative level as we can. the The virus doesn't take hold evenly across all countries. Um, there may be differences in intensity of transmission by a state or a province. Um, but then even even more, uh, importantly, it's to break that down even further. Where is transmission happening? Um, is it happening in in healthcare facilities? Is it happening in these expat dormitories that I mentioned previously? Is it related to specific events? Um, is it in certain vulnerable populations like long term living facilities? We need to break down the cases um, to to, a, to an understanding so that we know how to tackle it. Um, and, and when we look at the national level, it's very important to have that national number and, and, and Mike has outlined some of the, the, the reasons we may see some differences, but we need to break it down and understand where transmission is occurring because this will help us control it. Um, you've heard us talk before about these four C's where we go from no cases to sporadic cases, clusters of cases and community transmission. And what we're aiming to do with the testing and isolating and caring for cases and contact tracing is to bring transmission down from community transmission to clusters. Once we understand where those clusters are, to bring those under control and move, move that back down. Um, and so as much as we can, um, and, and this may be very difficult, especially in countries that are experiencing community transmission, is to really break down our understanding to, that, to the lowest administrative level as we can and use our resources where they need to be used um, most intensely based on that epidemiology.
3: And if I could add, Tarek, because uh, I answered the, the question directly in relation to uh, Brazil. Uh, I don't want anyone to get an impression that I've, I've singled out uh, Brazil. If we look at uh, Latin America in general, Brazil, if you count those numbers, the increase in numbers reported uh, yesterday, has about a 25% increase overall in the week. But if we look around the, the region, uh, Chile has had a 41% increase in cases in the same time. Argentina has a 38% increase. Colombia, 35% increase. Panama, 26%. Bolivia, 33%. Guatemala, 39%. Honduras, 38%. French Guiana, 86%. Costa Rica, 28%. El Salvador, 24%. Haiti, 26%. And Venezuela, 25%. So what we're seeing is still, in Latin America, is uh, an evolving epidemic in the region that's affecting all countries. um, And certainly Brazil, as the most populous country, is deeply affected, but uh, it's amongst many others. And we've also seen... uh, Uh, worrying increases in debts uh, in the same period in some of of those countries. Uh, So from from that perspective, I think it's important to see Brazil in its regional and in the global context. Uh, So uh, just to to be sure that uh, people don't misinterpret that in responding to a a question specifically on Brazil, that we're not conscious of the regional or global context and the place that Brazil uh, uh, sits within that.
0: Many thanks. We will take our last question for today. We have PN from uh, NPR. PN.
2: Hi. Thanks for taking my question. Um, there are reports of minks being called on a farm in Amsterdam over concerns that they could be an animal reservoir for the coronavirus. So I wanted to ask, what do we know now about animals and humans transmitting the virus between them, and how does that inform our approach to suppressing the virus? So thanks for the question. Yes, well, we have a, a team um, that's working on uh, looking at the animal-human interface and looking at the susceptibility of animals to this virus. You, you know about the work related to um, the origin of the virus. What I'm going to mention is specifically about the minks that you mentioned. And indeed, there are um, some minks that have been found positive in, in, uh, in uh, the Netherlands and in Denmark. Um, and what we understand from these investigations that are currently ongoing is that they were individuals who infected the minks, uh, so people who infected the minks, and in turn, some of these minks infected some, of some people. It's very limited in terms of the transmission that is happening bef- in terms of the transmission happening between the people and the minks. And some of those minks have been called, uh, have been killed. Um, we, we are learning about what this actually means in terms of, of transmission and, and what role they may play. Um, I should put this in context, that this is a virus that is, is predominantly transmitting between people through respiratory droplets, and this is the driver of transmission. Um, this gives us some clues about which animals may be susceptible to infection, um, and this will help us as we learn more about the potential animal reservoir of, of the, of the uh, COVID-19, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, there's a number of studies that are ongoing looking at the animals that are susceptible, from minks to ferrets to cats, dogs, um, pigs. Um, and so there's a, there's a large group of scientists that are trying to better understand the role this virus plays. But again, just want to put it into context of the fact that this is a human-to-human transmission primarily um, that we're seeing and why we're seeing this virus spread globally.
0: Thank you, Dr. Van Kerkow. We will conclude our press briefing uh, with this last question and remind you that we will get uh, the Mm -hmm. audio file to you shortly with the transcript being posted tomorrow. I wish everyone a very nice evening.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tariq, and thank you for joining. And see you on Wednesday.